1 Corinthians chapter number 3. We're in verse number 10. We worked last time through verse number 10 as we looked at Paul's illustration from an agricultural point of view as he deals with the divisions that are happening in the church in Corinth. Here he shifts his metaphor from agriculture to construction, to building. So I've just simply titled this Building the Church. And in this text, he lays out warnings to those who would build on Christ's church in an inferior way. We're not saying that they're not trying to build or that they're not building anything, but they're doing it in an inferior way. So I want to talk to you tonight about building the church and Paul's warnings that he gives, given the division in the church in Corinth and the issues that are going on there. He kind of addresses the church as a whole and even us, the future church, from Paul's point of view, on how we must be doing the things that we are doing. So let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. It says, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than, is, than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man that build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be rebuilt by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire." Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time of studying your word. We are your church, and we long to be like Christ. We long to do your perfect will in the world at this time as your church. We thank you that you've given us your Bible to guide us. So help us tonight as we look to it. Give us wisdom. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to hearts as you only can. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. We begin in verses 10 and 11 with a simple heading of Christ our foundation. And Christ is our foundation. This is exactly what Paul says here in both of these verses. In verse 10, Paul presents himself as a builder who had laid a foundation. Notice again there what he says. According to the grace of God which is given unto me. So he credits it well before he says what could be interpreted as a very prideful statement. As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. So, Somebody else is now building here. Paul said, when I first came to you, this is what, what was going on in your churches. Remember, he said you were babes in Christ. I fed you with milk because you weren't ready for meat. But I've come back to you now and you, you should be ready for meat. You should be eating meat, but, but you're carnal. You're not mature in your faith. So there's been an issue along the way. Here he addresses directly 
Another portion of that issue. Now up to this point, he's talked about the people themselves and not the preachers. He's talked about the, 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 the group as a whole and not those who would be teaching the group. And he said, some of you say you're baptized by this guy or this guy or this guy, and there shouldn't be these divisions among you. Now, in a sense, that, that is an issue, but it's not the issue. It's the symptom of the issue. You know, if, you, uh, if your neck gets tight and your head starts to sweat and you've got some pain running down your left arm, that's called... Really? No, I'm just kidding. Yes, of course. You would, you would think I'm having a heart attack. So the problem is not that your head is sweating and your neck is tight and that you have pain running down your arm. One of my favorite jokes as a kid was we would tell this joke about a little boy who went to the doctor and he said, doctor, everywhere I touch, it just hurts. I hurt all over. He says, the dull pain is a sharp pain. It's a sharp pain. He says, like, if you touch your shoulder, and he said, well, let me check. And he, oh, it hurts so bad. He said, what if you touch your knee? He said, oh, it hurts so bad. The kid had a broken finger. Like, do you know this? Okay. I loved that when I was in elementary school. That was one of my favorite jokes. That's the problem was the broken finger. The, the hurt shoulder was the symptom of the problem. You get the idea. Paul has been addressing a symptom here. Now he steps on over into a root problem. Now it is a problem that this church was divided over humans. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. But this happened because of what he addresses here as he says to them, I have laid a foundation and another buildeth thereon. A foundation has been laid and now someone else is building on it. And I want you to notice he takes no pride in his own role here. It comes across funny and I think Paul does kind of have that way with words that if you're not careful, you would read Paul and say, this guy's a little full of himself and it's amazing some of the things he says. But, but you have to read all of Paul to fully understand his character. In one verse, he may be saying, I wish you all would just be like me. And we would say, wait, 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 Paul, we're supposed to be like Christ. And he would go on to say, as I follow Christ, I wish you would follow me in this regard. In another verse, he may say something along the lines of, I'm the chief of sinners. Of all the sinners out there, I'm top. I mean, I'm not the best one. I'm the worst one of, of this entire bunch. So we understand his humility as we read this. So we must seek for it in this verse rather than trying to see his pride. Well, he doesn't say, I was a very wise master builder and I came to your town and I laid a foundation that none of you could have done and you better be glad that I did it. And where would you be without me? It's not what he's saying here. He says, according to the grace of God given to me. He doesn't just say, I am a wise master builder. He says, like one. As a wise master builder. He said, I, I couldn't have done this. God graciously used me in this way that I otherwise would not have been able to do on my own. Now that's highly important as we dig down into this passage and we think through our own role in the modern church, the Bible study we teach, the class we lead, the role we play in the gatherings of the church the people that we influence in our lives. In all of these areas, a foundation must be laid or a foundation has been laid and then there should be Christianity being built upon it. But this mentality here is key as you go into this. Paul is simply saying here, all I did was initiate the work. I didn't build this church. I didn't put up the walls and the roof and the ceiling. He, now, he's using a building analogy. 
talking about the people. I, I, I hate that I have to clarify that, but in the modern church, especially in America, we often too much confuse the two. He wasn't going to these towns building buildings. He was not a carpenter. He was going to these towns gathering Christians. That's the church. The gathering of the called out ones. Ecclesia. It's the Greek word. It's where we get the term ecclesiology, which we call the doctrine of the church. Paul is saying here, I just initiated the work. It's his own way of saying, I just happened to be the first subcontractor on the job. But God's the contractor. He's the GC. He's boss. According to the grace of God, which is given to me, I was able as a wise master builder to lay this foundation. And he goes on to say here, and just to be clear, I'm not the foundation as Paul. The foundation is Jesus Christ. So Paul's part was to lay a foundation through the grace that God had given to him. Now, we, we don't need to step past two. Just the, the simple biblical principle that shows up over and over and over again of, of grace given to me. The, like when you read the, read the Scriptures, sometimes you're looking for specific words. We were reading to the children this morning in Chronicles. What chapter, Jack? Do you remember? You, I'm testing you. You should know. <laughs> it's in the 20s, yeah. But it's where... Um, David was enticed to number the people. You remember that? That's a good, that's a good story. I had never in all my life paid attention to the first verse of that chapter says, Satan enticed David to number the people. You go home and read that and you can get more out of it. But what I want to point out is, actually Henry was doing the reading this morning and I looked up when, I, when he said that and I thought, did he read that right? I don't remember that from that story. See, I remember... I'm going to be offensive here, but I, I need to be offensive here. I remember how somebody had taught me as a young person in moralizing the Scriptures instead of teaching the doctrine of the Scriptures that David was prideful and numbered the people. That's how we interpret that Scripture. Now, was David prideful? Probably. He was David. But who gets the blame here? Satan. Satan is the one who did... But as I've studied this, I'm, and I'm... I'm pushing 40, 39. Some of you who are also pushing 40 are mad at me for just going ahead and embracing it. I'm just embracing it. My beard's turning gray. I got longer, no shove. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, getting, I'm pushing 40. I don't remember what I was saying now. So we moralize the scriptures, and all we think about is David being prideful, and we miss the doctrinal position there. That above King David's head and the nation of God's people, there's the spiritual warfare going on. And it's not just one of the top demons, it's Satan himself, right? That's a huge doctrinal implication to that passage. And we learn a lot about God from that passage, more so than we learn about David from that passage. Well, we do the same thing with words like grace and faith and hope. Most every epistle begins or ends or both with a phrase along those lines. Who knows what it is? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the faith of God be with you or something along those lines. And we read those and we just kind of read it as, you know, how are you doing today? It's nice to see you. Like that ain't really what I want to say to you. What I actually want to say to you had to have my air conditioning worked on at home this this week. What I really wanted to say to the guy was, 
It'll take you so long to get here. We're hot. Thankfully, it got cool the last couple of days. But I didn't start the conversation that way. I said, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Now, that wasn't the meat of the conversation. The meat of the conversation was, I hope I'm getting a discount because you took a long time to get here. And man, no, I didn't say that. I was nice and I paid well and tipped. So just so you'd understand how I operate. But to make the point, we read past those in the scripture. What is Paul saying here? Now, he's getting to a larger point, but he's laying out a big point ahead of time. The grace of God, according to that which was given unto me, I was able to do this here. Will you teach a class? Or you lead a study? Or you influence someone else's life? Or maybe you're so humble, you don't think you do any of that, but you're saved by the grace of God, and you are doing this in somebody else's life, or you're just being a bad Christian. I don't think many of us are bad Christians. I think we just don't take credit for what it is that we're doing. We're glowing Christians. Paul says here, God gave me grace to be able to do this. He used me. We can go back to Paul's other references of grace and understand how he uses the word grace. Galatians 1.15, Paul writes, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace. Now there's th three great instances of what he means as he doctrinally writes about the word grace. We can take grace right on the surface there and just kind of un understand it as God was nice to me. But is that all grace is? No. It's, it's much more than that. It's more powerful than that. It's more complicated than that. It's more complex than that. Yet it's oh so simple. For by grace are you saved through faith. But even when we say that, what are we talking about? Well, Paul says, well, it's what pleases God. Galatians 1.15, what is grace? It's what pleases God. Out of his good pleasure, he does these things. Why doesn't God do this? Well, obviously it doesn't please him or he would show that grace into your life. The second meaning Paul gives to grace in Galatians 1.15 there, he says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, what is Paul crediting there? This is, the, this is the, 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 the being, the deity, the action, the power that gave me life. I was physically born because of God's grace. What is God's grace? It's that which pleases him. What is God's grace? It is that what he chooses to do powerfully in our lives. And then the third illustration he gives from Galatians 1.15 he, and it seems like what he's getting to, but it's just one of the three to define grace for us. He said, it pleased God. He brought me out of my mother's womb and then he called me by grace. Now, called is that summons the dragging to salvation or it could be to ministry. In this particular context, it's to salvation. So what do we understand about grace then? It's divine it's according to God's good pleasure. It's powerful. It's all of these things. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So here's grace again. And it's within the context of we're saved, not by works, but according to God's calling. So are we saved according to our works? No. You'd have to fight Scripture to be saved according to your works. 
going to get to that more here in Corinthians in a moment. We're saved because God called us. Why did He call us? 2 Timothy 1.9 Because it was His own purpose to call us. When did He decide to do this? Before the world began. How did He decide to do this? In Christ Jesus. Now, that's grace. See, it's simple to just say, what is grace? Well, it's God's unmerited favor. That's a great definition and you'll hear me give it all the time. Because essentially, that is what grace is in your life. But if we're not careful, that's all we ever let it be. Is this messing you up? Your mom's name is Grace. I'm saying it about 57 times here. Okay, good. Spelled it. Spelled it. That's right. She's Grace with a Y. When we talk about grace in the church among believers, be sure what all we're talking about here. That which pleases God. The God who brought you into physical life. The God who called you to spiritual life. The one who called you with this holy calling, not because of your works, you can't earn this, but because of his own purpose in Christ before the world even began. That's grace. That's kind of stacked up, isn't it? It's, it's a little deeper than just God's unmerited favor. So here in 1 Corinthians 3.10, as Paul says, according to the grace of God, which is given to me, note there again, Paul's verbiage and tense. Not according to the grace of God that I found, not according to the grace of God that I earned, not according to the grace of God that I worked up or that I figured out as I read through the Scriptures. And he said, it was just given to me. That's not the case, then grace is not grace. According to the grace of God, which was given to me. So in full humility here, Paul admits that he did not deserve this leadership role in the church it was something given to him by God's grace. So what does he say there? According to the grace of God, which is given to me, that's what God did. What did Paul do? As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. And then he follows that with a warning. The end of verse 10, its own little sentence there. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Now, without studying this, just thinking of it in a deductive kind of a way, what is Paul warning here? And you can just read this at its surface and figure out what the issue is that he's going to address in this particular pericope. He is going to talk about those who are poorly building upon the foundation that God has had laid in Corinth. They're not doing a good job with their job. says here, anyone who is building upon this foundation God has graciously allowed him to build should be careful how they build. The Corinthian leaders who were allowing dissension to exist were not building wisely. In fact, we know through modern church history that the very thing happening there in the church in Corinth often is the thing that spurs denominations, Church plants, different curriculums, different points of view about doctrines, which leads to different books being written, conferences where the people who wrote the books can talk to you about it. And all of these things we sort of celebrate in our time, but when in reality, they're just simply the symptoms of division in the church, the lack of unity. And I don't mean the local church, I mean the global church, the universal church. 
J. Vernon McGee said, the foundation was put down over 1,900 years ago. You and I cannot put it down. All we can do is point to that foundation, which is Jesus Christ. We can build on that foundation. The important thing is to get out the word of God and to preach the gospel, which alone can save men. This is the foundation Paul laid. And that is the way McGee says that he lays out there. That is the way that it should be built upon. Go back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We've already covered this, but I want you to remember that Paul's already laid out this case here. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with the excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I declared not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, so what did Paul come preaching? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What are we supposed to be doing? The foundation has been laid. It is Jesus Christ. We just take the Word and we build upon that. What do we build upon it with? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Warren Wiersbe wrote that in more than 30 years of ministry, he says, I've seen churches try to build on a famous preacher or a special method or a doctrinal emphasis they felt was important. But these ministries simply did not last. The Corinthians were emphasizing personalities, Paul, Peter, Apollos, when they should have been glorifying Christ. There's be right. And we're still in that rut as the modern church. Famous, special, an emphasis. Why do you go where you go to church? Why don't you go to the other churches? This is the case for the modern church. So Paul says in, in light of these things, we need to take heed how we build on it. Now, certainly his emphasis will be different than ours. Now, we've all been born into a system where this is already the case. In Paul's day, that was the church in Corinth. It was not yet multiple churches in Corinth. It was not yet, is this Catholic or Protestant? Is this Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Holiness, Pentecostal, fire baptized, full gospel? And then when you get into that, you've got to decide, are you healing or not? Are you tongue-talking or not? Are you snakes or not? It was not yet all of that. It was just the church. And Paul says, let's be careful how we build upon this foundation. Boy, could you imagine being Paul and hopping in a time machine and coming to our era and saying, wait, you have four churches in one city all across the street from each other? Well, yeah, that's the Methodist, that's the Baptist, that's the Presbyterian, and that's the Church of Christ. Well, that seems weird. Why can't y'all just all meet together? Are they using different Bibles? No, it's the same Bible. But then how are they preaching different messages? Paul says here, take heed how you build on it. Now, I'm not saying to you as the church that, boy, we've got to go out and fix the world. In this regard, Jesus will fix the world. He's already told us how he's going to do it. All of the, the denominations, all of the flavors are all going to gather around his throne and worship him. There will be unity in the church. And we're already victorious because according to God's time, we're as good as there. This is a wonderful point. But for us now, we can learn from the Corinthians' mistakes and look out for disharmony in our own ranks, 
Look out for competition in our own town. Am I in competition with the other preachers around here? Wait, isn't it the same God? Is there two lords, two faiths, two baptisms? Or one lord, one faith, one baptism? This, this is not a competition. I want to say some other things there, but I'm not going to. Well, I like that I'm your preacher. It butters my bread. I'm glad you come here and you don't go over there. I appreciate that you probably say to your friends, oh, you should come to our church. I don't want to hinder you from all of those things. But at the same time, I don't want us to operate in those ways just so we can have more. Right? And if we're not careful, we've never been that type of a church. This is the type of church we've kind of been. I think Brother I was maybe this way, but I'll at least say during the chance era, I've been here long enough we can say that now, right? That it's kind of just been, well, we're the doctrinal church. This was for sure our claim at the softball game last Thursday night. As they beat our faces in 15 to nothing, we said, we could beat you guys at Bible trivia. <laughs> we blame Stephen the coach. Not Steve, the pitcher. Steve, the pitcher, did a great job. Steve and the coach coached horribly last week. We should have won that game. <laughs> the bat. We got a new bat this week. It's going to be better. Way to go, coach. All right, I'm back in your corner. <laughs> so let's take heed how we build on this foundation. We can't build off this foundation based off a doctrinal slant, based off of a personality, you understand how this goes in churches when you build it off the guy. You bring in a personality who's magnetic, who brings a lot of place, a lot of people in. What happens? Well, the church bigger than you pays that guy more money, and he prays about it. It's God's will. So off he goes to town where there's a nicer car and a bigger house and a. Three secretaries instead of one and a larger paycheck. You know that joke. That's one of my favorite jokes too. The guy at the little country church was doing just fine. Got an offer from the big city church with all of those things. He said, let me go home, talk to my wife and pray about it. He went in the house and told his wife about it. And she said, are we going to pray about it? He said, well, I am, but you get upstairs and start packing. <laughs> you build it off a of personality. Eventually the personality will leave. And then what will you be left with? A lot of mess, usually. Lloyd Ogilvie. I don't read all the time, but I do like to read him. He illustrates this very well. He talks about this church whose pastor had moved on or died or something. And the lay leaders of the church were in a search for a new pastor. So they decided, we're going to poll the membership to get a feel for what they want in a new pastor. The local seminary put together a survey about the church and the community and they administered this survey and they reported back that basically the results indicated that the church had unity in its mission and in their community what was interesting in this survey were the insights about how many different expectations there were from the membership of the role of the pastor one member said the new pastor needs to be available to every member all the time. Another pastor said, or another member said, the pastor is too available. 
He needs to have more time alone to study. Now, one of those statements suited some of you. One of those statements suited the other. You could call, get my phone records and figure out who, which one you are. Some said they want a pastor who was respected in the larger Christian world and invited to speak. While in the same church, there were those who expressed resentment at the pastors being away too much. Some wanted a minister who was a good counselor. Others wanted a minister who wasn't always counseling. And on and on and on it goes. There's a similar survey that Tom Rainer did for Lifeway about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And it had to do with members' expectation of a pastor's weekly schedule. Guess how many weeks, once they put it all together and calibrated it, that people expected the pastor to work in a week? 124 hours. Are there even that many hours in the week? I don't know how many. I don't count very well. Math's not my thing. But I do remember that. I was like, I was thinking like 40-hour work week, 50 or 60. You know, most, most professionals, business owners, people who are really into what they do, they overwork anyways. Now, I count golf as work. That's, I'm out visiting the Greens. It's not our church with the problem. It's the other churches. But 120 hours. Well, do we want a preacher who counsels or do we want a preacher who doesn't counsel? Do we want him to travel and preach and be well known in the Christian community or never leave town? And I know that there are radical situations where in any of these things we could be one or the other. And I'm not preaching at you tonight to change how you feel about me and my relationship with you. If I weren't comfortable with our relationship, I wouldn't share the illustration. You understand. But it goes back to what's happening here in the church in Corinth. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. Well, how long did he hold you down? Was it in the river or was it in a pool? Did he say the words right? You can't build it on the personality. You can't build it on preferential doctrines. Now, we do build it upon a doctrinal statement that we feel is true according to Scriptures, and that's why there are multiple churches in today's world, because this church believes this is right and this church believes that's right. And I enjoy studying and reading and learning about the doctrines of the church. But when we get into the things that make up the church, some of you, you're all about Genesis. Any Genesis fans in here? You don't have to be ashamed to admit it tonight. Stephen is. Anybody else? Yeah, well, yeah like uh, Ken Ham. I couldn't get his name to come to my mind there. It's a lot of fun. Now, some of you, you're Revelations people. You notice I put the S on it there. Eschatology. Is that Liz? Your eschatology. So y'all got Genesis and Revelation in the same house? I want to offer y'all marriage counseling. But it won't be too much marriage counseling, just a little bit. If we're not careful, you'll have a whole church. There's a, there's a church here in town, and I think the preacher has left, but for as long as I've been here while he was the church, and some of you will know the church, everything was eschatology all the time. They'd put it in the newspaper. He'd preach series all the time. Eschatology, eschatology, eschatology. That's what he was into. That's what he was good at. I told you guys since day one, I didn't take that class in college. 
I skipped Revelation. I was so glad when they let me graduate. I didn't have to take the Revelation class. I'm not interested. I'm not into it. I didn't want to get into it. I'm a pan-millennial, right? I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. And I said, one of these days, we'll probably need to study Revelation in depth. I've given you an overview of Revelation once before, seven years ago. We'll hire somebody. We'll, we'll have them come in. They'll do a weekend for us and really get us deep into the book of Revelation. But I'm not that guy. Well, it'd been bad for you to guys to make me your pastor if you were all about the book of Revelation. It wouldn't have worked. What are we doing for our town if we only ever focus on Genesis or we only ever focus on Revelation or we only ever focus on evangelism but we never focus on discipleship? Or if we just say, well, we're Old Testament saints. And we have these dinners and we wear these headgear and we, we do these Old Covenant type things but we try to do it in a New Covenant type way. Um, you can't build it based upon preferential doctrines. What is Paul's warning? Take heed how he buildeth thereon. And on and on and on this exercise could go. I've addressed kind of personality pastors, doctrinal slants. And you could keep going with the illustrations there. But when we're not careful in building the church, which is our role, that's what we've been called to do, gather. The harvest is plenty. The laborers are few. Pray the Lord to harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest. We're to gather. That's called building the church. The foundation is laid. Christ. If we're not careful, we're going to end up like the Corinthians. In our day, this results in ministers and churches and denominations all butting heads, competing with each other. Chafin says here, the divided church is created by our forgetting that we are servants and ministers of the one Lord and that both the field and the harvest are His. Amen. Verse 11 then, Paul makes a very clear point. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. You only put one foundation on a building. You, you don't, Steve, you build. You don't put a foundation down and come back next week. Put the second foundation down before you build the building, right? Why? There's no need. It's a good answer. I, was, I didn't, really wasn't sure why. That could have really messed with the sermon if you'd answered that in a very odd way. We should probably practice that ahead of time next time. Or this personality church I'm building here might doubt, start to doubt me. There's only one foundation required for a building. Once it's laid, it should never have to be repeated. True. Unless there's an earthquake or a flood or you know, something like that. But if it's done right, even with age and sinking and settling and all of this, it shouldn't have to be repeated. Well, Paul had laid the foundation of Jesus Christ here. There could be no other foundation. And with Christ as our foundation, there need not be any other foundation. So he says, take heed how you build their own, because there's no other foundation laid except that which is Jesus Christ. So he goes from there, Christ, the foundation, to we are the builders. So in building the church, Christ is the foundation, but, but we are the builders. Verse 12 through 15, he elaborates speaking of building upon the foundation and then the materials being used there. And I'll go a little quicker through this part. In verse 12, he gives a list of potential building materials. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. 
And then verse 13, continuing the same sentence there, he says, all of these works will be tried by fire. Every man's work will be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Verse 14 teaches then what remains is what will be rewarded. If any man's work abide which he had built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Verse 15, those whose work burns up, they suffer that loss. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Now that's a sad verse. We have a foundation laid, which is Christ. 10 and 11. Verse 12, there are building materials in this world. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. On the day, the end, the last day, the judgment day, whatever word you want to put behind that there, our work will be made manifest. Maybe it's being made manifest now just a little bit, but you never know how God's using you. But on that day, it'll be made manifest. And then it'll be tried by fire. Well, what's going to happen to the gold in the fire? It's going to be refined. And you can go on and on with the building materials. The stubble is going to just disappear. So, if, if we're rewarded based off the remains, then we understand Paul's meaning as he says, he shall suffer loss in verse number 15. When your work burns up completely, what is lost? Your whole life. You've spent your whole life doing this building. And now everything that you've given your entire Christian life, by the way, to is nothing. You're empty-handed. You've accomplished nothing for Christ. You've accomplished nothing for God in His kingdom. Now that takes us back to verse 10. Let every man take heed how he built it thereupon. Now, Paul is sure to point out here in verse 15, these are not unsaved heretics. These are not false prophets. He gets to those in a moment. But here he's simply saying to the saved, to the elect, to the the true bride, the church. If your work is burned up, you will suffer loss. But he clarifies, but you'll be saved. Yet so as by fire. Now that should make us think about Jude. Kind of get some similar wording there in the book of Jude. It's not how you want to be saved. It's not how you want to get there. but I'm thankful that Paul does make this clarifying statement here. It affirms two things for us. Number one, you cannot earn your salvation. If he didn't talk about that, you might could take this and say, well, if I build good, I might earn my way. Because on that day when it's tried by fire, I'll have something left, and so I'll get in. Entire denominations built upon that. But what do they do with verse 15? Even those who everything burns up are still saved. So you can't earn your salvation. But sadly, the flip side to that is some will sincerely labor for Jesus for a lifetime with nothing to show for it in eternity. And you could sit here tonight 
cynical and say, well, that's not what I'm doing it for anyways because as long as I serve Jesus all my life, that's all that matters. Well, that's not what matters to Jesus evidently because he had Paul write this down and send it to us. Be careful how you build. Be careful the materials that you're building with. My, the world has just infiltrated the church with all of these ideas that are not biblical and we're giving our lives to them. We're giving our money to them, our time, our children, our families, even our worship gathering to these things. And we're saying, well, we're Christians, so at least we're doing it to the glory of God. Doing what? Gold, silver, precious stone? No, this is wood, hay, and stubble. We're wasting our lives. I don't want to sincerely labor for Jesus for an entire lifetime and have nothing to show for it in eternity. I don't want to sincerely labor one hour in my yard and have nothing to show for it. I for sure don't want to go an entire lifetime as Christ's servant and have nothing to show for it. What's the problem? Paul says the problem here, they're trying their best. They mean well. They're sincere, but they're using inferior building materials. What does that look like? Well, we don't really get into Romans 8 and 9 because we don't quite understand them. But we invite a whole lot of people to church and just look at the number of conversions we had last year. Converted to what? Well, they read the card. They said the prayer. We dunked their head. It's inferior building material. Well, we believe that everybody's going to get saved is going to get saved anyway, so we don't spend a lot of time and money and effort on accomplishing it because God's going to accomplish it anyways. That's inferior building materials. He's going to send the church down the street. And they're going to gather their jewels home on that last day. And they're going to have full hands and we're going to be empty-handed. Are we using inferior Building materials. Well, we got a we got a, just a humdinger of a Sunday school and a youth program. But to what end? Where are all these adults who've come through the Sunday school program in the last sixty years? Where are they? They're not in church. They are not sitting here. Inferior building materials, and I don't mean that as an insult to Miss Wiggins or Miss Lisa or Miss Sue, Miss Redonna, Miss Patty. I think we've got good teachers that are teaching doctrine. In fact, should I find out otherwise, they wouldn't be teaching anymore. I've taken long rides with Miss Wiggins. When we first met each other, we used to go to Mobile, Alabama together. Hello, eight, eight hours? She was trying my doctrine, I was trying hers. <laughs> and then we went over the bridge closing our eyes. But I found out really quick, and every time she's tried to retire over the years, I've said, no. You cannot retire. Ms. Wiggins, you cannot retire. Why? Because she's not moralizing the text. She's not teaching the kids, you go be a David and slay some giants in your life. No, she's saying to the kids, you're totally depraved. You cannot slay any giants. Probably doesn't work it this way. But there's a guy named Jesus and David is a type of him and he slew the giant for you. That's the true gospel. Somewhere along the line, Cokesbury and Lifeway and all of these other people who existed 
to earn money. I know they didn't start this way. The Baptist Sunday School Commission, downtown Nashville, didn't start for the bottom line. But when you build large brick buildings in a downtown city, guess what you have? Overhead. You've got to pay the light bill. So you've got to sell the books. Well, the books that tell six-year-olds you're basically bad or you're totally bad versus the books that say, you're basically good, little Johnny. Just add a little Jesus in the mix and some t-ball and do well at school and you'll go to heaven. Those sell like hotcakes because the parents don't complain to the Miss Wiggins of those churches when they teach that. But little Johnny comes home and says, teacher said, I'm bad and I'm going to go to hell. If I don't get right with God, that gets complained about. Now, we don't use our Sunday school program for arm wrangling children into professions. It's never been the policy and it's never going to be the policy. But we do want to teach them doctrine. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. And I'm picking on Sunday school just like I was picking on pastoral search committees, just like I was picking on how much you guys like Ken Ham. You can pick on a lot of things. And some of you are sitting back there tonight saying, he ain't got no my thing yet. I'll get to the decoration committee in a minute. No, I'm just kidding. I like the decorations. I was thinking Easter Sunday was kind of bland. We didn't have our... I said ivies in my head. They're not called ivies. They're called lilies. We have our lilies up there. I missed them. I want to read to you from R.C. Sproul's notes here. He says, these verses address the evaluation of Christian ministry. Some ministers who are seeking to build God's building in Corinth, but who depended on human wisdom, were using perishable materials, wood, hay, straw, that would not survive the judgment of God's fire, while the builders themselves would barely escape destruction. Without pressing Paul's imagery too far, the perishable materials may be interpreted as either unsound teaching or the superficial converts that such teaching attracts for a time. Paul warns the church that they, like Solomon's temple, should be built up with that which is lasting. Amen. We've, we've gotten so good in the modern church with our technology and our resources, we can produce numbers. Well, any kind of numbers. Whatever statistically needs to be put down to, for us to be able to celebrate it as success, we can manufacture it and make it happen. Did you pack it out for Easter Sunday? Yep, that's a good growing church. Well, I don't know. They didn't all come back last Sunday. I blamed Brother Lucky. I said, Lucky, you screamed on Easter and nobody came back the next week. Nah. If that did scare them off, I'm with Lucky. Just be scared and go somewhere else. I have a renewed boldness right now. I've said this twice to my wife in the last few days. You guys might need to like hook me and wrangle me in a little bit, but I think we're okay here. There's been a couple things doctrinally lately that I've offended some people on, and I've finally concluded, and I've given it prayer, I've given it fasting, I've given it time, but I've concluded, if my view on this doctrine causes you not to want me to be your pastor, probably best that I'm not your pastor. I don't want to be mean or rude there, and I, and I never will. And I've apologized to people a lot lately that I've hurt their feelings. 
But when the truth is told, sin is sin. And if I call out sin from the pulpit and that offends you, that doesn't mean the preacher's wrong. That means you need to repent. Now, if I'm just a jerk face about it, well, that's a whole different situation. But nevertheless, do you guys know the old saying, the shot dog cries the loudest? I said that the other day and somebody said, what are you talking about? And it wasn't somebody from California. And I said, you know, like if you shoot into a pack of dogs, the one that you hit is the one that goes, whoop. And you know what question I got asked next? Why are you shooting into packs of dogs? I've never actually done it. I've just said the saying all my life. We for sure want to note these sharp contrasts here, though, in Paul's building materials. He, he says, and it's laid out uniquely in the Scripture, kind of like in one, one list. You know, do you ever try to correct the Bible? If I was writing this as Paul, I'd have made it two separate lists. But he makes it one list. But there are sharp contrasts. And, and, and I'm not going to try to put specific current items up against these things. This is gold, but this is hay. Like, I don't think we should do that. But I think we can grasp the idea. I like how Wearsby lays out the contrast. So I'm going to give you Wearsby here. He says, gold, silver, and precious stones. They're permanent. They're beautiful. They're valuable. And they're hard to obtain. That's all true of gold, silver, precious stones. Of wood, hay, and stubble, he says they're passing, they're temporary, they're ordinary, maybe even ugly, they're cheap, and they're easier to obtain. All very true. Now, nobody's saying that wood is un unnecessary. It's a wood pulpit. These are paper Bibles made from wood. Some of you heat your homes with wood when it's cold outside. Wood is great. But you know what's easier than chopping down trees and chopping up the wood and gathering it for the wintertime? Is if you have all this gold and you can just pay the guy who's chopping down the trees to bring some to your house. Now some of you workaholics in here are like, nah, I like the good hard work and how it makes me feel good. And I'm not trying to undermine that. But in the church, God has given us jewels to dig up. Instead, we like the work. We've decided, nah, we'd just rather chop down some trees, make the wood, pile it up, and say, look at what we've done. When in reality, what God has given us here is a treasure trove full of jewels, gold, silver, precious stones. And, and all we have to do is go in here and go after them and get them. Dive down deep, you'll find a pearl of great price. That's right out of the Scriptures. That's not as much fun. Planning these great evangelistic outreaches. I've done them and I like them. Probably I'll do some more in the future. That's way more fun than 13 hours and seven verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Y'all didn't know I was preaching 13 hours? No, I meant the study time. I was late to dinner tonight. Sorry, Aunt Redonna. Shanae said, you know, we're supposed to be at Aunt Redonna's house. And I was like, oh no, I have to take a bath. So I was late. You know the old saying, quality over quantity. I think this is what Paul is saying for us here. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Quantity 
is not nearly as good as quality. D.L. Moody used to say this. He would say, our converts need to be weighed as well as counted. (laughs) That's great. How many did y'all have safe last year? 387. Let's weigh them. Are they of substance? Well, we don't know. We don't know where they are, so... They profess Christ, but we haven't seen them since. We told them about our, our great Sunday school program, but they didn't want to come back. Did y'all hear about the preacher that got all the bats out of the church? Have I told y'all that joke? I'm full of preacher and dad jokes tonight for some reason. This church had a real bad problem. They had this attic and they had these bats in it. And so they, they called in an exterminator and he said, I don't know what, what y'all got going on here. I can't get rid of these bats. He tried. He said, I think something spiritual is going on. This is a church that's got bats in it. So they called in a a spiritualist, had a seance and lit some smoke, came out screaming, I can't get rid of these bats. Well, two or three days later, the new young preacher showed up from the seminary. They showed him where to go and where everything was, said, we'll see you Sunday, but we got these bats. They showed up Sunday, no bats. And they said to the young preacher, how in the world did you get rid of these bats? And he said, well, just like every other church I've ever been in, I baptized them and they never came back. (laughs) This is a reminder to us of the the depth we must all go in our Christian lives. Now, Paul is for sure speaking to church leaders, those in the elder position in these churches who are not doing this and is causing great division in these churches. But for you and I, we can apply this to -to day-to-day living. Are we focusing on quantity or quality? And it's a little bit of both. You've got to be reading through your Bible. You need to get through your Bible every once in a blue moon. We studied in the men's study the other night in Deuteronomy. Every seven years, they were expected to get through the whole Bible. Now, they didn't have as much Bible as we do now. So I take 14. But nevertheless, I'm reading through it. I'm more on the quality in there for me as far as I might take 17 years and three words because I want to know exactly what they meant and how they were spelt and all these kinds of things. And we're all wired differently. The point being, we have got to, in our personal Christian lives, focus on gold, silver, precious stones, and avoid the human temptation to flex our own muscles over things like wood, hay, and stubble. Amy Carmichael, is that a familiar name? India missionary? She would say, the work will never go deeper than we have gone ourselves. It's great. G. Campbell Morgan, he was asked by some young guys, how do we build a great ministry like you've built? And he said, work. But he elaborated on that and he said, you can find wood, hay, and stubble in your backyard. And it won't take you much effort to pick it up. But if you want gold, silver, and jewels, you're going to have to dig for them. Amen to that. In verse 16 and 17 then, and I'll close, Paul goes one step further in just how important this is. He says, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Can I make one more point? And this is, this is a little bit petty, but I do want to make the point. Just, just kind of attacking where we are in the modern church. Just to prove how much we're all about quantity instead of quality. How long have I been going, Jimmy? 55 minutes. That's pretty long. I thought it was less than that. So I'm not going to be able to make my own point. 
My point was going to be, we love short sermons. And even if it's heavy on doctrine, we have a hard time sitting through a long sermon. Maybe not our church. Maybe sometimes our church. Amen, Jimmy? You're just tired from holding the wires in back there. Paul talks here about the temple. In the old covenant, God's presence was signaled in the temple when God would fill it with the cloud of his glory. First Corinthians chapter or first Kings chapter eight, 10 and 11 reads, and it came to pass when the priests were come up out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Now, Paul takes that kind of thinking and he addresses the church here. He says, now God indwells you this way. You're the church. He indwells you this way. Now, he's going to get to it on the individualistic way in chapter 6. You can look at just a couple pages over. Chapter 6, verse 19, he says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. So he's going he's to go individual there. But in chapter 3, verse 16, he's talking to the group as a whole. And he says, Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, the church. This group of people gathered in the city of Corinth. What is Paul's point here? He addresses the church. Those of you, verse 17, those of you using inferior building materials, those of you trying to lay an additional foundation or a parallel foundation or your own foundation, you are actually actively destroying God's temple. Verse 17, if any man defile, destroy, if any man destroy the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Within the context, what he is saying here is when you settle for wood, hay, and stubble, when you're not willing to mine for gold and silver and precious stones, you're not only using inferior building materials, you're actively destroying the building of the church, not the physical structure. Now that's a step past verse 15. Because in verse 15 he says, you'll suffer loss, but you'll be saved. But in verse 17 he says, if you're the ones destroying, God will destroy you. Him shall God destroy. Why? Because the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The difference is simply, some are true believers who've either mistakenly or because they've settled for are using inferior building materials. Some are true false prophets who've said, I'm going to lay my own foundation next to the foundation of Christ and we're going to have a Christ plus this type church and then I'm going to build it up on wood, hay, and stubble because it's cheaper and it's quicker and it attracts more people. Been to a ball game lately or watched it on TV? They've changed sports in my lifetime. Football has more touchdowns. Baseball has more home runs. Basketball has more dunks and three-pointers. Why? Because that attracts a bigger crowd than good defense that prevents all of that. And I'm not saying I'm mad about it. I like it. Slam dunks are fun to watch. And so are touchdowns. But let us, the church, not settle for superficial, inferior building materials. And let us for sure beware of the false prophets 
who have this form of godliness but are actually denying the power thereof. And they're building what looks like a church, but it's, it's actually nothing more than how to live your best life now. I don't want to live my best life now. I want to live the best life I can now with the, with the hope in my brain that there's something better coming. This world is not my home. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. May we take it and receive it and apply it and use it. Father, I truly believe there is great change needed in the modern church. A correction, of course. We've seen in the past 20 years a resurgence of many wonderful things, probably to the extent and on par of what the Reformation itself was in the early years. But Father, we're still left with a whole lot of baggage, a whole lot of wood, hay, and stubble. And there's not one preacher that's going to solve this. There's surely not a group of preachers in all of the churches in the world who's going to solve this. It's going to take the bride as a whole. Every church member, every Bible reader, every singer, every musician, every teacher, every leader, every games leader, every person that brings food or decorations or does anything that is attached to the church is going to have to inspect the building materials and say, what are we doing? Is this wood, hay, or stubble, or is this precious stone? And then we've got to stop with the wood, the hay, and the stubble. And we've got to put our focus on only the superior building materials. So Father, we confess openly before you tonight we repent ourselves of this as a church. And we long to be on the course you would have us on and to do things exactly as you would have us to do it. So help us to stay fervent, to be in prayer, communicating with you, to be in your word, to be sharp and ever alert, to be doing the things that you want the church to be doing, to stop doing the things you don't want the church to do for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.